following podcast may contain spoilers. Emanating from the last video store in the universe, it's Binge Movies, episode 116. I'm Jason. This is the show that ranks and eliminates movies to determine which ones are worthy of preservation for all time, even beyond the end times. On this episode, we rank Don Bluth. On January 1st, 1982, real film critic Roger Ebert wrote these words. The main difference between traditional Disney animation and cheaper, newer methods is in the areas of body movements and backgrounds. Don Bluth and his followers wanted to make a movie in which the characters would have lots of body language, not just moving lips and rolling eyes, and in which the backgrounds would be detailed and interesting not just repetitive roll buys. In the 70s and 80s, a guy by the name of Dom Bluth uh, was responsible for basically lighting a fire under the ass of the Walt Disney Corporation and their animation department and kind of uh, unintendedly led to the Disney renaissance because uh, Disney's animation was in the shit can. Somebody who's not in the shit can, but somebody who lights a fire under my ass is Brian Scuttle from Sonic Cinema. He is my guest this week. Brian, how the fuck are you doing, man? Yeah! I am doing very well. Thank you very much. Uh, thankfully, the way, I, uh, the way I ended up watching these movies did not end up on quite the uh, note that I was dreading, and I'm, I'm looking forward to this discussion. Well, I think we don't waste any more time. We got a lot of movies to talk about, a lot of technical specs that I barely understand to get through. So let's start with the 1982 classic to a great many people come to find out, The Secret of Nim, which currently has a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. Now, Don Booth Productions creates a new world of animation where fantastic creatures... Why have you come? Great dangers... Adventure awaits you. Look there. Discover the secret of Nim from the award-winning children's classic, Rated G. Starts Friday, Plitt Century City, Hollywood, Hollywood, and selected theaters. The Secret of Nim was directed by Don Bluth, as all these films were. It's a story by Don Bluth, John Pomeroy, Gary Goldman, Will Finn. It is based on Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim by Robert C. O'Brien. And it is the triumphant return of the patron saint of comedy and flavor for this podcast. Of course, I'm talking about the late... I'm, I'm, late doesn't even sum it up. I'm talking about when you're talking about a patron saint, you you have to talk about their largesse. You have to talk about you have to talk about the essence. You have to talk about their spirit. You have to talk about the the glory with which they emanate. I am, of course, talking about the glorious Dom DeLuise. Released mm. July second, nineteen eighty two, on a budget of seven million dollars, quite a bit of money for animation. Box office of fourteen point seven million dollars. Widowed farm mouse turns to genetically enhanced rats and discovers mystical powers in order to save her home and her dying tiny son. A mouse family uh, has to 
move and rely on predators that would normally eat them to do it. Yeah. Uh, look, Bluth pitches this story. He reads the book. He finds the book. He pitches the story to Disney. And their response was, and I quote, we've got a mouse. <laughs> and they also had just released The Great Mouse Detective, and it had been a hit. And so they were like, look, uh, we doubled down on the mouse thing. We got the one. We got the other. Which brings me to an interesting point. Why is it that we have not had a cinematic, theatrical, Mickey Mouse feature-length film? My guess on that would be because of the fact that Mickey Mouse is kind of a one-dimensional character. And I, I think he works better in short bursts rather than, you know trying to draw out an arc because of the fact that Mickey is not a complicated character. You can't necessarily do, I can't necessarily see like a feature length romantic comedy with him and <laughs> Minnie where like there's that inevitable second act breakup yeah. and then they have to get back together. I, I just don't see that happening. Look, I, I we're, we'll get into it the further we go along. Uh, you know, Don Bluth had been in the Disney animation family or whatever you want to call it for a very long time. And this is the movie that basically, you know, at this time, Disney overall is in the shit can. The theme park isn't doing that, yeah. that great. Uh, any of them, the, their movies or they, the seventies were a disaster for them. And they're basically surviving off of, uh, re-releases of their classic films because the new stuff just mm -hmm. isn't working at this time around this time, you know, this is 82. So around this time they're putting out Fox and the Hound and black cauldron, black cauldron was a notorious flop. Fox and the Hound did good business, but didn't set the world on fire. And the thing is, if you look at Fox and the Hound and you said, well, this, this came out, you know, and then it, you could have said that movie came out in the fifties and people would believe it. There was, there's nothing all that yeah. impressive about, the animation of Fox and the Hound. Uh, as a kid growing up with it, I thought it was much older than it was. I thought it was, you know, a, 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 you know, maybe Jungle Book era, but it's not. It's a way later film that they've released. And I think what would begin to happen is, is the company's fortunes began to fall. And quite frankly, they kind of started to give less and less shits about animation. They were trying to move into more live action. When that happens, um, they start cutting corners because animation, especially mm -hmm. hand-drawn cell animation, is very expensive and time-consuming. And they started cutting corners, and Don Bluth and a couple of the, the artists there who were doing all of this rich, detailed animation by hand were like, you know, no, we dreamed of working at Disney, so because Disney was, this is going to sound stupid, but the Pixar of its day, right? The, the ability yeah. to create depth of field in, in an animated format had never really been done. And thinking, thinking camera wise in animation had never really been done. A lot of animation, even early Disney stuff was a character moves left to right, right? There wasn't as much of like planes of, of, uh, of, uh, dimension and, and, um, yeah, thinking about, Thinking about animation cinematically, I think it's probably the best way to put it. So all these people are like, we want to go work at the world famous Disney animation studios. And they're putting, they get there and, you know, midway into their careers, they're putting out shit. Disney's putting out mm -hmm. shit. 
And they're refusing to give time and money and whatever. So Don Bluth goes out and creates one of the first independent artist-owned animation studios in the world. And it's not just owned by him, but everybody who was an artist there had a piece of his business, that business. And they take Nim and they go, okay, Disney doesn't want it. We're going to go adapt it ourselves. Bluth adds the magic element to it. There was no magic in the book. Uh, mm-hmm. And Bluth himself said, uh, one of his quotes is, regarding magic, we really just believe that animation calls for some magic to give it a special, fantastic quality. And one of the other big changes was the name Frisbee, R-F-I-S-B-Y, had to be changed to Brisby, actually in post pro- mm-hmm. post-production, because the Whammo company, who may be the only company more evil than Disney, uh, owns the copyright on Frisbee with two E's, and we're like, nah, you, we're not clearing that. You can't use it. It sounds, it sounds too much like trademark infringement. One movie is about a farm mouse. Your product <laughs> is a disc that children and, and frolfers throw. What what would have the what 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 would the trademark confusion have been, Brian? I, you know that's that's one of those things where you you just laugh at the way things work in uh, corporate America, and if you didn't laugh, you cry because I mean you know, and that's the thing I completely forgot about the fact that I was I was reading my I was reading my review and I forgot that it was in fact. Mrs. Frisbee, and I'm like, wait a minute. And I just watched the movie a few days yeah. ago, and I'm like, wait a minute, I didn't mishear that, did I? And no, I didn't, because of the fact for the exact reason you said. Um, you know, and it it's fascinating because of the fact that you you mentioned how, for lack of a better word, for how much in the toilet Disney was at this time as a uh studio, and it's interesting because as we go through this story of Bluth, we're also going to get to the point where Disney reasserts itself. Yeah, oh yeah. And, yeah. Directly and, directly as a way of putting this guy <laughs> out of business, basically. Yeah. Or at least or at least changing the trajectory of the movies he made. And it's a shame because of the fact that he starts out with such a strong Boy, yeah, as an yep. as an artist and seeker of Nim. Yep, this is a wonderful film. I I've loved this film since I saw it when I was a kid, and um, this is this is the type of thing that I really feel. You know, it's like it would take a while for movie for some like Disney. Pixar to really go. I mean, even they don't necessarily go as dark as Secret. Of yeah, this movie is dark as fuck. Let's just put it. It's, yeah. it's gnarly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's this is immediately from the voiceover. Yep. And then you get the animation. You get the. It's such a foreboding feeling. It's yeah. such a haunting feeling. Yep. And it's funny we talked about uh, Mulan on my last guest appearance. And we had, we talked about Jerry Goldsmith a little bit there, and we've got Goldsmith here, and his approach to this story is, it's a very Goldsmith approach. Yeah.
and it's also just a powerful piece of film. It is, and yeah. He is. He he is. It's a shame that he only won one Oscar in his lifetime because he did a tremendous amount, just brilliant work. For all intents and purposes, Disney is king shit of animation for half a century. They've had uh, media empire ambitions forever. And yeah. they want to move into live action. They, they want to just own everything. And they spread themselves too thin. They gamble on the wrong stuff. And so eventually what happens is they start cutting corners and treating their animators like slave labor and, you know, just a lot of really shitty practices. And so Bluth and his guys go out and they basically form a de facto union kind of, you know, by forming their own animated animators owned. Everybody's got a piece of the business company mm -hmm. and they go off and try to do the stuff, push, push. not just go back to the way Disney did it in a regressive way. They're trying to push the envelope forward. They're using rotoscoping in this with, with multiple passes of the camera over transparent shadows and they're backlighting the animation which is you take a, like a matte painting and it, each matte painting kind of is like a, a shot, right? And then you shoot that matte painting from behind with light. And then you can use color gels on that light to produce different glowing effects and, mm -hmm. and fire effects and all this sort of stuff. So that's one of the things that immediately stands out, even from Nicodemus, that opening scene, the Jerry Goldsmith score, Nicodemus is writing with his pen and, you know, his decrepit zombie-like crypt keeper hands on this pen and this deep, rich voice is coming through. And, but he's writing and his writing has this glow that seems to be emanating that doesn't quite look animated. And it's a, it's a very striking visual, even some 40 years later. And mm -hmm. you're watching, you're like, how the hell did they do this when frame by frame, shot by shot, movement by movement, somebody did by hand and, and uh, it, it, it's truly remarkable. And then the thing that they really figured out is color palettes. What they did was they created multiple color palettes for each character. Now this doesn't sound like that big of a deal in the world of computer. Remember they have to do all of this by hand. They yeah. create multiple color palettes for characters so that that character of Mrs. Brisby is in a sunnier place. She looks a certain way. If she's in daylight, if she's in nighttime, if she's in a warm environment, it seems where she's underwater. And so just as a, for instance, Brisby has 46 different lighting situations that were configured by hand, which means there's 46 different color palettes just for her character. 46 handmade color palettes for one character. Mm. Then. Again, pushing the envelope forward, he decides to bring in computers. What they did was they brought in two computerized multiplane cameras that were specifically manufactured for this production. So the movie, because of those multiplane cameras that were invented for this, which eventually Disney would steal, uh, <laughs> for <laughs> the movie feels very cinematic. And I, I would mm -hmm. have to imagine that the best way to see this film is on the largest screen possible. Uh, I know yeah. multiple generations have seen it in home video and cable and whatnot, but with the score, with the attention to lighting and detail and whatever, I think a restored print of this 
in uh, on the big screen would be something amazing to see. I mean, that owl sequence alone. Oh, God. It looks yes. like a painting of like a <laughs> fantasy novel or something. I mean, it's deeply, this is deep, rich, this, dark animation. You know, this is, I mean, you know, going, talking about, you know, and the way you, as on point with what you were saying, is like the way the colors are used. Disney just wasn't doing this. No. Now, I will say, thinking about it, you do get an impression that really this is sort of returning to what Disney did with the night on Bald Mountain sequence in Fantasia. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And how dark it is. And they, they're not afraid to just make it as, as weird and as scary as possible. And this is a scary movie. And, uh, but it's also just, it's also a deeply emotional one yeah, too. Yeah. The Brisby family is exactly what they should be. Their family. Once that first sequence with all of the kids, with Mrs. Brisby, we get the impression of all of these characters. Yeah. And I, what I love about Jeremy, the Dom DeLuise, the crow played by Dom DeLuise is yes, he's comic relief. But he's also an actual character. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We find out things about his character. We th find out things about um what he wants, and it's just a it's a masterful piece of storytelling. I mean, I would this isn't this isn't just a one of the best non Disney animated films ever made. This is one of the best animated films ever made. Period. Well, I would argue. I think we're at this point. We're in a golden era, and Bluth is bringing this back to the forefront as well that, that Disney again had shied away from, but it wasn't just for an animation. It was in live action children's stuff too, uh, is that, uh, there's this golden era, I guess, I, seven, late seventies, eighties where the, and this film does it masterfully. It takes its young audience serious. So yeah. it doesn't dilute the storytelling and character development just because it's for children. And in that way, it feels like what children's books used to be like and what many animated classic features that Disney would, would have produced used to be like. It, it, it feels that there, there was this era in which things moved slower and characters were mm -hmm. developed and there were distinct personalities and motivations and it sounds silly, and, and we'll get into it when we talk about our next movie in particular. It sounds silly to, to put so much investment into the character of mice and rats and cats and farmers and whatnot, but, but you, and to take the story so serious. But I think that uh, being a child of this era, uh, I, I think... I think that a lot of what has come out for kids, even by the late 80s and certainly in the 90s, is really kind of offensive in a way. Because it, it, it's, it assumes that children are not emotionally intelligent. And obviously, yeah. uh, children are not emotionally and cognitively fully developed. That's what it means to be a child, right? I mean, that's kind of a redundant thing to say. Children aren't fully developed. <laughs> but... <laughs> I think we grossly underestimate what kids are capable of. Yeah. 
And I, I think when you raise a generation, this, now this is old man screaming to the clouds. I think when you raise a generation of people on just noise and sound and fast things and ah, and fart jokes and like bottom bottom of the barrel kind of humor just to keep their attention constantly, I think you're training the minds of children not to take things serious. I think when you present an animated feature that is literary in its style and its presentation, then you are introducing that child to a, a deeper way of storytelling that they'll carry with them as they consume more and more mature media going forward. And I think that a lot of our media discernment and illiteracy that we're facing in the world today is because we just stopped challenging kids. Yeah. I, here's the thing. Kids need to be fucking scared every once in a while. Kids need to be, you need to push the envelope and you need to cause kids. It's okay to scare a kid. It's okay to make a kid cry. It's okay to make a kid think deeply about the world. Because as Roger Ebert said, you know, again, I'll quote him again, that, that movies are empathy machines. They're, they're yeah. not just thrill machines. They're, they, and that, that's part of it too. This movie has thrills. This movie has adventure. This movie has this. It has that. Um, but at the end of the day, this movie has warmth and a heart to it, uh, as many of the best Bluth movies do, um, that, that, that is just sort of missing from a lot of media for the last 20, 30 years. Yeah. No, and I, I think you, you know, you go on the journey with these characters. Yeah. And it's, it's probably, you know, this is going to sound weird. It's probably the slowest 82 minute animated film I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm right there but with you 100%. It move, but it still moves. Yeah. It's always moving forward. It's that set piece with the tractors, as exciting as any set piece we've ever seen in animated. It, I'm with you there. It is, yeah, it's it's a short, it's a children's runtime, right? Yeah. But so much happens. There's so many different characters, so much character development that it doesn't, it, it, it feels deeper and richer than any 82-minute movie should. And on mm -hmm. top of that, it's so deliberately paced. It goes, it almost goes back to that, like, Fred Rogers mentality, which is the best way to speak to children is slowly and quietly. To, to yeah. give them distance and time to process what's happening and what you're saying and what you're doing. And this movie almost has that. There's so much, even, be, even between the line readings, even between the dialogue between characters, there's so much uh, airtime. There is so much. Mm -hmm. It's not just a constant bombardment of noise. There's, it, th this movie breathes. And because of that, you get these very excellent performances from the voice cast where they mm -hmm. feel like people. They feel like characters, like you said, because they're not just delivering lines. It's not just quippy, quippy, quippy. And as much as I like a lot of the Pixar stuff, sometimes Pixar is too quippy. It's too modernized yeah. in the way the characters, everything's like, eh, it's, it's too, <laughs> it's, it's zippy in a way that people aren't in real life. And mm. this is not, this is, these, these seem like real people struggling with political issues and class issues and all kind of stuff. And yeah. so it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's something else. Um, I, I, I the, my, my reservation with this movie is I like the animation. I like 
the storytelling sensibilities. I love the Jerry Goldsmith score. That I was, as soon as it fired up, I didn't I didn't know it was him. I didn't know he did the score, but I knew it was him as soon as I heard it. I was like, yeah. I just my first note was Goldsmith's back, baby. Yeah. <laughs> um love a Jerry Goldsmith score just like you do. There's something this movie has never hooked me. It never hooked me in as a kid. It never hooked hmm. me in as an adult. It, it, it was not one that was played frequently. It was not uh, one that we had. It was not. So maybe that's part of it is that it's not like as deeply ingrained in me as some of these other ones are, one in particular. And, mm-hmm. and so for me, like I am appreciating on this, this technical level, I'm appreciating on a storytelling level, but it's almost like I'm looking at it like in a laboratory or something. It's, I have this sort of almost like sterile approach to I see it, I recognize it, I'm observing it, <laughs> but there's an emo- yeah. emotional distance between me and the film. And uh, so because of that, I could only give it a 7 out of 10, which is mm. kind of low. And I, I think that's maybe a little bit unfair. So let me, let me bump that up as, I've, as we've talked about it, just on the technical aspects alone. Let me bump that up to a 7. I'll give it a 7.5. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I, okay. I, you don't even have to twist my arm in that one. I'll bump it up, and I that may end up changing my rankings a little bit. I'm not sure. I don't remember, but we'll get into. <laughs> it. I may have just created a giant mess for us, but we'll see. Also, <laughs> is it just me, or is this movie 100 percent the inspiration for Rise of the Planet of the Apes? I I think that's a fair. I I think that's the. I I think that's a fair thing, and that's actually one of the things that I wanted to talk about. And uh, I before we uh, wrap up on this movie there are a couple of things i wanted to talk about one one is we only get like one song in this movie yes which you know is different for animated films and i appreciate uh, i appreciated that <laughs> i appreciate it and i also like that it's used in a different way it's not brisby it's not mrs brisby singing the song like in a musical it's a song that's it it's a song that's playing that is essentially there to do what great music does yeah. and emphasize the emotion of the of the scene, which is one of the things I love. Um, now, going off of what you said as far as Rise of the Planet of the Ape, I think the fact that the fantasy elements in this movie that involve the rats of Nim, it it's beautifully developed, but also the fact that it's rooted in a very real world idea, which is this idea of animal experimentation. Oh yeah. Yep. And I think that's such an interesting way of approaching yeah. it. And I, I, you know, that's, that's something that really struck me this time. And it's one of the things that I think connect that is just really works well as far as tying this story into a, into a reality that isn't just oh we're gonna make a fun animated adventure we're gonna make a right you know we're gonna make an imaginative story yeah this has real ideas behind and i think that i mean part of that goes to the book but all but it also goes to i think kind of what blue blue saw was kind of missing in animation and family films at the time which is the idea of bringing in real world concepts into 
these fantastic stories. Oh, well, I think, it, yeah, I think you're 100% right. And I think it plays into what the story is doing, which is that this is a fantasy world that could exist in your backyard. Because the, the, the macroverse, so to speak, of this world is ostensibly our world. It's ostensibly mm-hmm. the real world. But in this realm that we can't quite see, something remarkable is happening and uh, subsequently kind of miraculous or mystical or whatever. There's a spiritual element to it too, but it's happening kind of like at our feet. And I think as a kid, that concept really resonates with you because that's, yeah. that's how a child's imagination works, or at least it did before the internet. I don't know how kids' imaginations work now. <laughs> but before the internet, you know, when you were bored, boredom, you know, they, they talk about necessity as the mother of invention, right? So you have to, you had your imagination, and, and you, even if you had action figures or whatever, you took imagination to make that feel like something was happening, right? You had to fill in the story details yourself. And so as a kid, you would just like look out the window and imagine scenes of, uh, you know, spectacular, whatever it was that you would imagine as a kid, be it strawberry shortcake, My Little Pony, superhero battles, Marvel comics, whatever, whatever it is, or just something you created in your own mind, you know, Knights of the Round Table, whatever, the, whatever, right? You would, you, you imagine that in your backyard. If, if you weren't even, yeah. if you were, and oftentimes you were enacting it in your backyard. You were outside mm-hmm. and you were playing with neighborhood friends and this is what we're going to be. We're going to play Knight Rider and who, you know, and we're going to do this and we're <laughs> going to do that. And I mean, I'm going to be Bill Bixby and the Incredible Hulk, you know, and blah, 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 whatever. We're being Gilligan's Island, whatever it was that you were doing, you were doing it in your backyard. And so the idea of planting this fantasy world literally in somebody's backyard. I think that resonates with kids so much. I think it's a very smart decision. Um, and, you know, I think of some of the best kids movies of all time, uh, a live action one that would end up doing at the end of the decade is Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, right? They're having the adventure of a lifetime literally in their backyard. And mm-hmm. I think that, I think that, that is, that's an accessible, that's a door of entry for children's imaginations. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, uh, you know, you, you, uh, when, when you were talking about this film, uh, you, you were talking about how you, you sort of, because of the fact that you didn't necessarily have this in as, as a part of like your, your childhood. It's so to a certain extent sort of feels that distance. And I, I completely understand that. Um, this is one, and we're going to get into this as, this uh, episode goes on <laughs> yeah. because of the fact that um, there were admittedly some of these films I didn't see as a kid. Yeah. And yeah. it's funny because of the fact that, but this is one that was always a part of my life. I, I do think this is one of the better animated films I've ever seen. And I, it's certainly one that's always held a uh, special place in my heart. I am going to give this movie an 8.7 out. Okay, so where does, out of the five that we watched this week, where does it rank for you? This is honestly my number one. Okay, so I've I've done some reconfiguring of my math because it threw us off. This is now my number two. Let's move on to one of the most commercially viable animated features of the entire decade of the 1980s. Uh, a movie that is, it's really hard to describe just how big and significant this movie is 
because in many ways it's, it's kind of like fallen by the wayside culturally, which is very odd. And, and when I revisited the film, I was reminded of just how prolific, in particular, one character was and how this, this fucker was everywhere. I'm talking, of course, about 1986, An American Tale, which currently has a 71% on Rotten Tomatoes. Wait, wait, for the secret weapon! The thrills, the laughter, the music. Steven Spielberg presents a Don Bluth film. Stick with me, okay? An American Tale, rated G. Starts Friday at select theaters. Again, the, all these movies are directed by Don Bluth, so I'm just, I'm done saying that. Uh, it's a screenplay by Judy Freudberg, Tony Geese, story by David Kirshner, Judy Friedberg. Tony Geese. It is released July 21st, 1986 on a budget of $9 million. It made $104.5 million. It, 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 you know, Brian, in doing this show, it is so strange to see so many movies that made in modern money equivalents on, you know, modern, you know, Let's say that on a modern budget, this would cost about twenty million to make, twenty million to market. So let's say this. Let's say American Tale made a day as a forty million dollar movie, uh, and it made five hundred million dollars. Yeah, it would. Yeah, you know, it, 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 it's it's that's what we're talking about. But it's just really weird that in the passage of time, something that is so huge, so popular. I mean, the the, the Feifel dolls and. The character. This was a huge staple of Amblin. This was a huge staple yes, was. of Spielberg's <laughs> portfolio. They, they they had a sequel to this. They had an animated series of this. There were toys. There were video. Games. This thing was huge. This is the first true because now it's Bluth paired with Amblin Spielberg basically, and this movie set the world on fire. And you hardly ever hear about it. It's very odd. I know. It's fascinating to see what stays in culture and what does yeah and you're right like you you look at those numbers and yeah you would swear this was a success on the level what a pixar movie yeah. is on a regular basis. yep um and again which is i always have to put this in context <laughs> for our younger audience members in 1986 the vast majority of that money is domestic that's 104 yeah. million dollars mostly in the u.s the thing is it wasn't just like it was popular in 1986 and then it went away this thing, I think, it, I think it subsisted. I think it lasted. I think it had a cultural, I think it was culturally relevant for probably about a decade. And then it just disappeared. And I don't know why. Mm -hmm. But you bring it up, yeah. you bring it up, and anybody who was even remotely alive in the 80s and 90s is like, oh, yeah, yeah, what a giant movie that was. I love that movie. Ah. And so it's like, it's like we all know it, but we've all kind of forgotten it at the same time. It's very strange. Yeah. Well, yeah, and it's it's interesting. Like I and I think it's you know, and you talk about being it being everywhere. It's like when the when Five Goes West comes out, didn't came out, didn't Jimmy Stewart do voice? It was his. I think it's his last performance. I, yeah, I think it was his last movie. <laughs> yeah. It's like you you have Jimmy freaking Stewart <laughs> yeah, exactly. in that movie. Yeah, and yep. it's like wow. I mean, the idea of, and but it. I think the Spielberg aspect of it is a huge part of it yeah, because yeah. he was such an 
omnipresent part of the age. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, especially once Amblin got started, it's like you basically could tell when Spielberg was involved with something in American Tale. And you can definitely tell here and probably for... And now, having... Now seeing it as adult, for reasons that I wouldn't have picked up on as a kid. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's start with our synopsis here. The world's most annoying immigrant child strands himself in the U.S. <laughs> and is sold into sweatshop labor while his parents grieve his presumed death. <laughs> uh, family immigrants who immigrates to America and has that experience in every way that we uh, know that experience to be. Yeah, that's very true. That's a more serious take <laughs> on it. Look, yeah. to our point, this was the highest grossing non-Disney animated feature of all time until Pixar. Yeah. This thing held the throne for a decade. Nobody ever thought anybody was going to be able to outdraw Disney. Not only was it the, most, the highest grossing non-Disney feature, it beat out Drew Disney and direct competition at the box office that year with The Great Mouse Detective. It, this movie was not universally praised by adult critics at the time. Uh, in fact, uh, our, our buddy Siskel and Ebert on their show at the movies gave it two thumbs down. And, and the, the, their quote was, the most downbeat children's movie since Return to Oz. Well, no. I mean, look, <laughs> when, when, when you're starting off with the uh, oh, pogroms against the Jewish people in Russia. <laughs> yeah, yep. I think that's a fair assessment. <laughs> There's a serious note and a goofy note. Let's start on the goofy note first. Let's get something straight. Feifel sucks. Fucking asshole! I'm gonna fucking kick your ass! You motherfucking bitch! <laughs> he's a dumbass. I get he's a kid. He's annoying. The kid's voice is annoying. The character is fucking stupid. And I don't find him endearing at all, and I hate Feifel. Okay. You any kind of honest? Anybody know who you are? Maybe everybody else wants to enjoy the peace and quiet. Who are you? You miserable, presumptuous, no talent. Wow. Let's start, let's start there. Now let's <laughs> move on to the more serious aspect of it. The choice. Why did they? Why did Bluth and company double down on mice? And it's because mice was. Or the or was an anti-Semitic trope for Jewish people, mm. and that the Nazis used. And this movie is a hundred percent about Nazis who are basically cats, <laughs> yeah, uh, and racists and anti-Semites. There is this idea that in in America there is no prejudice. In America. There is no, mm -hmm. there are no cats. That's a big song. In America, there are no cats. Yeah. America, right? If we can escape Nazi-dominated Europe and immigrate to America, we will be free to practice Judaism and be the Jewish people and be immigrants. And there are Italians and very many ethnic stereotypes who show up on that immigration boat. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, who sing a very dark song about how Mussol a, a cat... Basically, Mussolini and Hitler and whatever have killed their family, and their only hope is to make it to America. That's what that song is about. Because mm -hmm. they, the, they have the Italian, they have, they have a, 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 a mouse from Spain, I think, a mouse from Italy, and a mouse from uh, the basically Russian Jews, European Jews. And they're all talking about how their loved ones have been killed back in the land that they've come from. But it's like done in a silly way about how cats ate their family. And you're like, mm -hmm. wait a minute, wait a minute, Italian, Spanish? 
Jewish. <laughs> Wait a second. I get what you're doing here. And yeah, it is directly when they get to America, there are cats here. There is prejudice. There are bigots. There is, uh, the, yeah, they're herded into ghettos. They're put in a sweatshop labor. America is not all it is cracked up to be once they get here. Yeah. And they live in poverty and with sickness. And, and let's, just, let's just be straight, straight up to our audience here today, Brian. This movie is grim at times. <laughs> even, even more so than The Secret of Nib. Yes. And, I mean, that's because of the fact that, of course, the American tale was actually dealing with, you do have a lot of real-world issues that are being brought into it, like the anti-Semitism, yep. like child labor and exploitation, like corrupt politicians, and like the way that this country treats immigrants. Yeah. You know, we want to say, oh, yeah, bring you know, bring in, you know, give me your tired, your weak, your poor, your hungry. But at the same time, it's like, no, 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 we, 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 that doesn't mean we have to like you. And, um, well, yeah, it, he, it's unfortunate. Yeah. Feifel washes ashore at the feet of the statue of Liberty and he does meet kind people and kind immigrants and whatnot. But he also basically all of the localized people who have been here for a while or who were born here, it, it, it's a descent into hell. And I, that sounds yeah. hyperbolic, but it is not. His situation as an orphan child in America goes from worse to worse to worse to worse to worse. To, towards the end, he's in a literal gutter <laughs> with other orphaned, cynical mice. And some of them are like dying from diphtheria. And he's starting to get pneumonia. And he's starting to get sick, and he's coughing, and the mice look like they're 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 like there's a bunch of ill children, sick, dying orphan children in the street yeah. with TB, and you're like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> and so when Cisco and Ebert are like, God damn, this is this is grim, this is downbeat. It is. It is a downbeat yeah. movie. Very much so. And uh, no, it's. It's one of those things where it's like, I, I don't know, you know, it's like, I I did watch, this is one I watched as a kid, and I, I love this movie. I, I thought, I, I'm sure we'll get to it at some point, but I'll go ahead and stay right off. I, I will go ahead and stay here, somewhere out there, should have won the Oscar. Yeah, okay. What was it up against? Screw, screw Take My Breath Away. Oh, jeez. Somewhere out there, should have won the Oscar. Wait, it was um, Take My Breath Away versus Somewhere Out There? Yeah, Jesus. basically. But because it was Top Gun. Wow. Know. Holy but, shit. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, yeah. Th I mean, I do. you do understand where Cisco and Eber are coming yeah, from if you... Yeah really think about this as an adult and like oh my god how are <laughs> how do you show this to kids but the thing but i mean you you put in that central hook which is bible loses his family bible is trying to find his family yeah everything else is part of that journey it would be interesting to hear somebody do an interview with spielberg where it was just talking and to see what he would have to say about why he thought this was why he wanted to collaborate with Bluth on this story. 
And I think it would be one of those things where he's starting to really embrace his Jewish identity because it was, I mean, there was a long time where he didn't do that. And it wasn't until he was truly ready to do that with Schindler's list that it was, it was a process for him. I would be fascinated. Yeah. Why, why does he get into the, obviously there's the, there is this, a strict money version of it, which is, he's building this production company. He's building Amblin and what, what a better, what better way to increase his portfolio in the kid market in the family friendly market, which he had kind of, his movies were not necessarily kids movies, yeah. But they all had that, that the, the this is the beginning of that sort of Amblin feel where they're family inclusive, they're kid inclusive per se, right? Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, he's writing off of E.T. here and he's creating Amblin, he's doing all this sort of stuff. And it does seem like, okay, this is a partnership here between us and the studio. It now starts to put me on, not the same footing, but it gives me a leg up on Disney, right? Yeah, and we can Amblin can kind of be the Disney of the '80s or the heading into the 21st century because it it really for a long time seemed like I mean Disney was in bankruptcy, so it definitely seemed the 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 throne was in question. It wasn't just a slam dunk that Disney was going to come back, and it, without that renaissance, they don't. Just quite frankly, and and with some shrewd and uh, objectionable, questionable Michael Eisner decisions. Uh, which was his claim to fame. He basically got them out of bankruptcy. Yeah, so it, it's, there's a, obviously a business decision here, but they didn't, ha- why choose? That's, that's a heavy story regardless. I mean, that's like straight out of Godfather 2. Let's just take that mm-hmm. segment, make a whole movie out <laughs> of it. And obviously there's still kiddie sort of stuff in there. Uh, the, yeah. the, the most kiddie thing other than Dom DeLuise again as a cat who kind of thinks he's a dog, but doesn't is a vegetarian cat and all this sort of stuff. Uh, you know, the, the non Nazi cat, basically, um, Mm -hmm. there's also Tony Tapone, who is basically James Cameron's character from, uh, Titanic is like, Oh, to America. (laughs) I mean, everything this guy says is a stereotype. Like, like his catchphrase is holy spumoni. Whoa. (laughs) It's just like, Hmm. This is uh, this is yeah. <laughs> this is not age well here. There's some. There's some. No. No. There's some stereotypes for non-Jewish characters and probably some Jewish characters too that you're like, I yeah. We probably could have toned down the stereotypes here a little bit. Yeah. yeah. No. That I I think that's absolutely true. But I mean, then again, if you think about the '80s and any rational, you know, in in a in any uh, objective light i mean you know we were still having issues with those type yes. of stereotypes throughout pop culture it's not just <laughs> in this movie what's happening hot stuff his name is long duck dong the scenes at sea where five gets lost i think are like like the tractor scene in Nim, I I it's as terrifying as anything we've seen in anime. Yeah, oh sh- it's for as sure. Good yeah. as sequence of scary. It it's as scary as sequences we've seen in animation. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, it's it's really it's really quite impactful when you think about it that way. I uh, no, and I you know, and you know, if you're if we're looking at it through the perspective of 
you know, what we've been talking about from a thematic standpoint, you know, Dom DeLuise is the cat who doesn't have a prejudice bone in his body. The main cat is basically protecting, pretending to be a mouse who lures the mice into a trap. And like, so there, yeah, I mean, there, this is really some heavy shit for an animated movie. It's like, oh, the heck? But what I connected with as a kid and what I still connect with is Bible's journey. And yeah, he, he's an annoying kid. <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. He, cause he's, he's, he's almost, he's almost annoyingly naive. Yes. Is part of the problem. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he, he trusts the wrong people and there are people. And I mean, say what you will about Tony being a stereotype. He does genuinely seem to want to help Bible to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, I do have some questions, though, as to why some of the mice have human-like hair and others don't. Exactly. Yeah. It's very, that's there's some <laughs> uh, odd choices there. Yeah. <laughs> I think Madeline Kahn is wonderful doing a riff on her Blazing Saddles voice. Yes. In this film. Oh yeah. Um, James Horner does a wonderful film and does a wonderful score here, and you know, almost immediately, it's like you really connect with the music and the. In only a way that James Horner was really capable of. Has any Amblin work transcended to younger generations? Is it is Amblin relevant? Not the Amblin style, the Amblin feel. A lot of people have yeah. tapped into that. It's some 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 more successfully than others. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about actual Amblin movies. Uh, be, because I remember E.T. was everything, right? E.T. was yeah. huge. It's another one of these yeah. ones. And I remember Siskel and Ebert, right? Uh, saying uh, it was it was the modern era's Wizard of Oz, which basically mm -hmm. meant this is something that 50 years from now we're still going to be watching. Okay, well, we're 40 years removed now, which seems yeah. insane, but we are. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know a kid on earth who gives a shit about E.T. You know, I, I went to, uh, you know, when, when the special edition of E.T. came out in 2002, I... Uh, my my mom and I went to the screening. Yeah, I mean, it was during the week, so I mean, it was you know, so school naturally wasn't in, but there were so few people there, and I'm like, it's ET. Like ET was a part of was a fundamental part of my childhood. Yeah. Um, to your point, I mean, other than the Jurassic series, which was the '90s, but that's and that's a very different thing from what Spielberg was doing in the '80s. Yep. There really isn't, which is mind-boggling. But, I mean, the thing is, unless you're a film fan, Spielberg doesn't really mean much to this generation. And, I mean, I think part of that is because for the past 20 years, since Schindler's List, he's been predominantly doing serious films. 
though he graduated from being a populist filmmaker who did things that everybody can enjoy, escapism, to, you know, a populist filmmaker who primarily did um, serious work. Yeah. And so it's one of those things where it's like, it's going to be interesting to see. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with some of these Amblin properties. But I mean, the the fact is, it's like there are like like you said, there's not really a there's not really an appetite form outside of the uh, Jurassic movie. Is um, I should know this is a movie geek and a movie podcaster. Is Back to the Future under the Amblin label? Because he presented it, he produced it with. Oh, you know what? Yeah, you're right. I, I, it is Amblin. I think the, yeah. I think the only one. That, I, I think it is. I think I the only property that's transcended. Yeah. To a younger generation, is that's in that Amblin Golden Era. Ironically, is I don't think it's any of their animated or more kitty features. I think it's just Back to the Future. I think that's it. I don't think any. I don't yeah. think anybody beyond a certain. Age, and this is hard for me to say, right? Because this is my peak childhood, basically. Right. Um. And and even <laughs> even in the '90s, this stuff was still in the culture and big and important. And you know, you wanted to go to Universal Studios so that you could be a part of all of this sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh. I don't think ET means anything. I don't think like amazing stories. That doesn't mean shit to anybody. I don't think um, I don't think the I don't think the American Tale films mean anything to anybody beyond a certain age, and I, I don't think Who Framed Roger Rabbit means shit. I think that's another movie that is absolutely gone. To, it's gone to the ether, and nobody cares, and and nobody's impressed by it unless you were a child who was terrified by Judge Doom, and fascinated by you know that there's there's no. It is just, it, it's so strange that Amblin was out Disney-ing Disney for so long and they're just gone. It just doesn't mean a thing. I think yeah. maybe Gremlins, maybe Gremlins. But even then, I don't think that that has the cachet with younger audiences of a Back to the Future. No, and I, I think basically what boils down to is it, you know, basically it's, I think the main reason younger audiences would know is if our generation who grew up with these movies are sharing them with the other generation. Yeah. With the old, younger generation. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I, I mean, grand, there are younger people who absolutely love Roger Rabbit, but they're mostly film fans. Yeah. Hardcore film fans <laughs> or somebody, yeah, somebody's dad or their uncle or their older brother or something was like you got to see this i i just i still i yeah I, i'm right there with you you know in 2021 we got a ghostbusters movie which was very much cut from the cloth of an amblin movie and what blew my mind about that film is that i was i saw it twice in theaters and two different audiences opening night audience 7 p.m so lots of families and a saturday night audience still families but skewing a little skewing a little bit more towards general audiences not your hardcore fans of the series or whatever and in both audiences the kids responded so deeply to annie potts being on the screen <laughs> as janine melnitz yeah. 
And I'm sitting there and I was dumbfounded by this, Brian, because I'm like, how the hell do these kids know who Janine is? And in fact, a, a girl went, oh, Janine. And I was like, <laughs> somehow this franchise that has had no proper sequel or follow-up in this continuity in 32 years is still relevant. And yet, obviously, let's Ghostbusters, especially the first one, is, was the highest grossing comedy of all time and pop culture phenomenon, the song and everything, right? So th it's not like Ghostbusters yeah. was some small movie. It was massive. And it created one of the most popular cartoons of all time that ran for damn near a decade. So I'm not trying to say that these, it was a surprise to me that these movies have a legacy. It was a surprise to me of how rich a legacy it had when there's been no follow-up. And yet this Amblin era of which there hasn't been very many follow-ups to these, these films other than Easter eggs and Ready Player One or something like that. Yeah. Um, it doesn't have that legacy. So what the hell happened to where children are crying in a Ghostbusters movie because Janine Melnitz is on the screen, but <laughs> nobody gives a fuck about E.T. It's just, it's so strange to me. Well, and the funny thing is, I think we'll kind of get to that as this story comes on, as we continue on with this podcast, because what happens at the end of the 80s? Yeah. Disney reinserts itself. Yeah. You're and right. Basically takes over the family market. That's a that's a really great point. So uh, yeah. I, yeah. I think that yeah. I mean that is that is the only possible explanation. They, oh, yeah, by I mean I will say by, as far as by the time we get Little Mermaid, they've almost completely overshadowed Bluth. Yeah. In one movie. Yeah. 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 Even though they're stealing and, uh, even though they're stealing a lot of his techniques and Right. And just putting more money right. behind it, more resources behind it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And we'll, we'll talk about that because I mean, it's, it's relevant. It's certainly relevant to one of the films that oh. we're going to be talking about, yeah. but, um, it's, it's also, it's one of those things where it's like, I, I think that's part of it where Disney, once Disney was back, they just basically took everything over yep. as far as that, that audience. But I will say as far as Ghostbusters, that is, that's, always one of the more popular cosplays at some places like dragon Con. yeah oh yeah yeah because 100%. it's such an easy yep handmade thing to do that's part that, see that a, yeah that's part of the appeal of with, it is anybody can be a ghostbuster because even in the movie it's yeah. all diy yeah yeah and even and with something like american tales something like he those are good kids costumes you're not necessarily going to cosplay those characters like when you get old, a grown man cosplaying as ET would terrify the shit out of me. <laughs> it it really would, yeah. It'd be horrifying. Um, I mean, like it, oh, it'd be horrifying. Oh, like uh, demon <laughs> out of hell. Like, what the <laughs> fuck? Yeah. No, oh my I mean, it's god. Good for, it's good for a kids' costume, but once yeah, once yep. you grow out of it, it you know you you can't really do that. And um, ghost but, but Ghostbusters one of those things where it's like you can cosplay it as at 10, you can cosplay it as 25, you can 70. cosplay it at 40. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it, right. it's one of those things where yeah, I mean, it's it's just one, I, and I think that's as much of part of it too. Yeah, because uh, it keeps it, the fan, the, the continued fandom keeps the fire burning because you yeah. can keep yeah, you can keep building on to it and, and you can go to a convention and 
you know, there's, there's not been a Halloween since 1984 that kids haven't been dressed as Ghostbusters. Period. Oh, Period. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, so it's, an easy, it's a costume you can put your kids in. It's a movie that can, you can show your kids. They'll laugh. They'll be scared. And mm-hmm. it's, there's just, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, so it's, it's very, it's just, it's just going back to that thing of, like, there's movies that were, at least in probably our perception, Brian, as kids growing up, like, on equal footing, right? Like, yeah. you know, American Tale is, is, you know, as successful as, or not actually not, but, but as an animated feature, which we're expected to make less at this time, just as big in the zeitgeist for kids as a Ghostbusters or a Back to the Future, which were not kids' movies. But yeah. and maybe that's also some of it, too, is a Ghostbusters or a Back to the Future you can, they almost appreciate in value over time because you receive them as a child, but you, you, but as you grow up with them, you can enjoy it as a five-year-old, as a 15-year-old, as a 25-year-old, yeah. as a, yeah. because they weren't made with kids in mind, per se. They're just movie movies. And mm-hmm. some of these kids' movies are so, they don't appreciate with you over time. And so maybe there's just less people passing it on because... They grow out of it. And then, then there's just new kids' movies for a new generation. Well, and the thing is, it's like, I think, especially if you're, you know, and I, I'm saying this as somebody with no kids myself, but who has a lot of friends with kids and stuff like yeah. that. It's like, I would imagine, like, if I had kids, I would certainly show my kids each. Yeah. I have no problem. Sure. I would, I would be, int- I would be curious to see how they felt about Seeker of Pet. I would be, curious to see how they felt about an American tale. Yeah. But at the same time, I also would I can I would also understand if after those initial after those initial viewing, they kind of moved on to what's coming out now. Because I mean say what you there, you know there are a lot of really terrific options out there yeah. for kids yeah. now. And um it's and it's one of those things where I I think uh you know I I I would understand if kids now don't necessarily get obsessed with E. T. because they weren't there yeah. when E. T. came out. I mean E. T. was everywhere. Yeah. E. T.'s not everywhere. Which and, is very I mean, strange, yeah, but you're right. Well the the next thing that it was best known for outside of the movie was the universal ride which i don't even know it's at universal. last i checked it's still running now you can go beyond the realm of any movie into the future of live entertainment where every adventure you've seen on the screen happens to you this is no ordinary theme park it's a real working motion picture and television studio and you're a star Come to the only place on Earth where everything that happens in the movies happens to you. Live the movies at Universal Studios Florida. No one makes believe like we do. I have to give this one a 6.5 out of 10. It's my number three. It's it's a middling film to me, which is strange because I loved, again, I loved it as a kid. It just didn't, I guess it didn't appreciate in time. I give this a 7.8. This is my number three as well. Yeah, I, here's, a, here's um, the thing, Brian. You and I both know Pixar doesn't have the balls to make a movie like this. No. I will say this about Blue. I think 
some of what he does, at least in the first few of these movies, points the way to how Pixar did business in terms of doing more mature subject matter and getting the emotions right. Yeah. I don't think Pixar lacks the balls to do mature stuff. I don't think, yeah. I don't think that they would do a movie about uh, like Holocaust kind of ideas or anti-Semitic. Directly. Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> right. No, 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 absolutely yeah. and with not. A dr- with a lecherous, <laughs> drunk, union-busting politician mouse who's smoking yeah. cigarettes and cigars and shit-faced the entire film? I don't think so. Oh, no, that's something <laughs> that could only exist in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Something else <laughs> that could only exist in the eighties. We're getting close to the end of the decade. So unfortunately we're getting close to the end of the golden era of Don Bluth. We're talking about 1988's the land before time, which currently has only a 70% on rotten tomatoes. The creators of an American tale comes a timeless classic for the whole family. George Lucas and Steven Spielberg present a Don Bluth film. I am all alone. I Five friends share the world's first adventure. You want to go with me? Yeah! An adventure in the land of the dinosaurs. The land before time. Rated G. Starts Friday at theaters everywhere. The Land Before Time has a screenplay by Stu Krieger, a story by, again, Judy Friedberg and Tony, Ge- Tony Geese or Geis. It is the triumphant return of Judith Barcy, last seen in, actually seen, in Jaws the Revenge, rest in peace to her. It's the triumphant return of Pat Hingle, last seen in Batman Forever as Commissioner Gordon. Uh, this time, uh, he has clothes, actually. Uh, actually, no, he, he doesn't have clothes because he's a dinosaur, and he's a narrator. <laughs> I assume he's not in his bathrobe, though. It is the triumphant return of, uh, no, that's it. I fucked that last one up. You miserable presumptuous, no talent! This movie was released November 18th, 1988, on a budget of $12.3 million. This movie made $84.5 million. Don Bluth wants to send your childhood to lifelong therapy as he kills one lovable creature after another, this time dinos. Don Bluth plants the seed in still. Steven Spielberg that dinosaurs are the way to go. Hundred <laughs> percent. There's you were alive for this, so you know it. For I think there were some archaeological discoveries in the '80s that ended yep. up filtering into the pop culture, and by the end of this decade, kind of culminating with Jurassic Park, dinosaurs were everything, mm-hmm. especially for kids. There were dino cartoons, yeah. dino out of nowhere it was an explosion of dinosaurs. Dinosaur pajamas. For all of a sudden, dinosaurs, these long dead creatures, became this almost the sole domain of children. Yeah. And they, there was a dino explosion. And this movie is right there. If if not at the start of it, very early in that explosion. And the, you're 100% right. This is on record as the thing that got Spielberg to go, what if I made a dinosaur movie? This is the, the <laughs> he said it, this working on this, well, he started, his imagination started running as he started seeing the animation for this as a producer for a Jurassic park movie. And yeah. you know, the early working title for this film was the land before time began. And that's not a bad title, but I do think the land before time is a stronger one. And Bluth, Spielberg, and Lucas originally intended for this movie to have zero dialogue 
because it was primarily influenced by the rite of spring sequence in Fantasia. And mm -hmm. if this is one of the shortest run times ever, it's not theatrical length. It's only 69 minutes Yeah, because they had to cut 11 minutes of footage out because it was too dark and grisly. They cut so much sharp tooth content out because his mother's death was more horrific. And the final chase sequence of him trying to kill these little baby dinosaurs was so scary. We're like, we cannot put this out for children. One of the producers was like, we got to get rid of this. So there is, there's con the, the ending of this movie is rife with continuity errors. It just sort of abruptly ends because there's 10 whole minutes that's missing out of it. So what they did yeah. was to get it to be able to play in theaters, they attached it to the Brad Bird Amazing Story short Family Dog. So, oh. so if you want to know, again, we're talking about Bluth and his influence on what would go on to be Pixar. Look at where Brad Bird's getting his start. Mm. There are so many people influenced by Bluth and his way of telling stories, especially in animation, including his old uh, compatriots at Disney, who a year later are going to put out the, the Little Mermaid. Uh, who have seen all of this stuff that he's been doing with computers and all this other stuff and basically end up doing Bluth better than Bluth. Mm -hmm. um, and all of these people who would go on to be a part of the foundation of Pixar. So yeah. the reason why we're doing an episode on this guy after we just got done saying this, his movies and Amblin in general have almost no legacy is because his legacy, like you said in our last little bit there, last segment, his legacy is basically the way animated movies work now it's yeah. more bluth than yeah. classic disney and this this movie of all of them i think secret of nim and in particular land before time every disney movie that comes out post little mermaid uh every pixar movie that has ever been made <laughs> Somebody sat down and watched The Land Before Time. There is so much in this that just feels exactly like... And in fact, Pixar tries to do their own version of it, and they shit the bed with the, the little dinosaur or whatever it was, Dinosaur Junior or whatever. That's an indie band, but, but the movie nobody gives a shit about. The Good Dinosaur. Yeah, The Good Dinosaur, that's yeah. it. Uh, Roger Ebert gives this movie three out of four stars. He wrote, he wrote in his written review... I guess I sort of like this film, although I wonder why it couldn't have spent more time on natural history and the sense of discovery and last, last, less time on tragedy. As much as I love Roger Ebert, Roger, you were a 45-year-old nerd, unmarried nerd at this time, who had no children, had no children in your life. I think Roger Ebert, mm -hmm. after he's with Chaz and he's got the grandchildren and actually became a fully emotional adult, I think he would have liked this movie a lot better. Yeah. The reason why they don't spend time on natural history is because it's not about natural history. It's about living nope. dinosaurs, you dumb, you dummy. <laughs> and living dinosaurs with actual relationships and familiar relationships. That's what this is about. This, that, this, this is, yeah. it's all about family and it's about, and uh, there's coded Mormonism in it. There's racism. They directly deal with prejudice. Our prejudice is mm -hmm. taught. It's not instinctive to us. To hate someone who looks different than us it has to be taught to us by the generation above us. That's, there's, they're not, this isn't, this isn't fucking, uh, 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 
Encyclopedia Britannica here, which is a very dated reference. I don't know where he's coming with this. Do you, I, are you on my side or are you on Ebert's side here, Scuttle? Oh, I'm very much, I'm very much on your side. I uh, so first of all, I I have to say my wife who loves this film and even had a Land Before Time themed birthday party when she was a kid. Oh, uh, yeah, was, of course. Was was startled when I told her that I hadn't seen this. That that's very strange to me as well. You know, you're a little bit older than me, so were you just maybe aged out of the demo? Because this this is definitely skews younger. Yeah, this is I by this point I had kind of aged out of animation, which is kind of why like I'd seen American Tale, I'd seen Secret of Nim, but I didn't see this. Yeah. And it basically boiled down to by this point, I was more interested in you know, the Amblin type live action yeah. stuff. I was interested more interested in like Ghostbusters Back to the Future, but it also started to watch our raid movies by this point and it's like i needed that stuff i needed stuff that was more i felt like i was ready to watch stuff that was more adult so you're sitting there what you're sitting there watching so, robocop getting excited for last crusade and <laughs> batman 89 and ghostbusters 2 yeah, and you're waiting for yeah. that the next year and you're like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna go to the movie theater i'm not going to pizza hut and getting my personal pan pizza and rubber puppet ducky and all excited about, <laughs> and I've said this before yeah. ad nauseum. But I, if I don't say it on the actual episode, then what the fuck was the point of even doing this episode? This is the first movie I ever saw in theaters. Mm. This is the very first motion picture my parents ever took me to in a movie theater, and we went to Pizza Hut after we got the tie-in, plucky, uh, you know, hand puppet that came with it um, again. Uh, I think, unfortunately, the legacy of this is very, very many shitty direct-to-video sequels. Yeah. <laughs> which is a shame because they have almost nothing to do with this movie whatsoever. I mean, it, it's the it's just everything. The entire sensibility of there being 19 uh, whatever the fuck, uh, Land Before Time films is just insane. But the yeah. plush dolls, the the stuffed animal versions of Littlefoot and Sarah and all of it. I mean, Petrie of uh, the, you know, the uh, ducky saying, yep, 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 was just, it was again, this was pop culture. This was everywhere. It, yeah. I mean, to the point that I would say, I think Littlefoot supplanted Feifel a little bit as kind of a mascot for Spielberg's children's entertainment and Amblin's oh, yeah. children's entertainment. I mean, yeah. the, these characters were everywhere. And, oh yeah. yeah, I I completely believe that. And the the, uh, uh, the first of all, there's the baked in nostalgia. This is the first movie I've ever seen in theaters. Second of all, it's very very short, mercifully brief. Yeah, I think Pat Hingle's narration is some of the best narration I've ever heard in a movie. All that remained of his herd was his mother, grandmother, and his grandfather. He knew them by sight, by scent, and by their love. He knew they would be together, always. Now, you be careful, my little foot. <laughs> it doesn't even really... It sounds like him, but doesn't sound like him. Because he's in the movie as well. Mm -hmm. I think he plays Sarah's dad. and Or one of the characters. And uh, 
No, he's the old dinosaur that eventually Littlefoot runs into. It's all her fault. All whose fault? Mother's. Oh. I see. I see. Why did I wander so far from home? Oh, it's not your fault. It's not your mother's fault. Now, you pay attention, old rooter. It is nobody's fault. The great circle of life has begun. But you see, not all of us arrive together at the end. What'll I do? I miss her so much. And you'll always miss her, but she'll always be with you, as long as you remember the things she taught you. In a way, you'll never be apart. For you are still a part of each other. My tummy hurts. Well, that too will go in time, little fella. Only in time. There is so much warmth and heart. And this movie feels like a hug from your loving grandfather. This movie feels like you're at your mother's funeral and your your maternal grandfather is consoling you, which is a very specific feeling, but that's what it feels like. This is a sad movie. This is a grief-stricken movie. This is this is this entire movie is really there's a lot of different things going on in it, but it's really about parental loss. Mm-hmm. It's it's about grief. Or really the loss of anybody. It's 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 a it's a Really a, a processing when a child loses someone they love, be it a grandparent or a mother or a father or whatever. And um, this movie will fuck you up. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't care that it's fucking you up. It, was, it is constructed to fuck you up. So by the time that Pat Hingle shows up as that older dinosaur or as the voice of the narrator and he interjects some things, it just ties the whole thing together. and. There's such a, I, it, there's such a therapeutic hugging warmth all the way through this film that is just a delight. And a lot of that is probably baked in nostalgia uh, being the first film I've seen in theaters, but I don't know. I, I think it's just, I, I think this movie is just sweet and earnest and uh, gut-wrenching. As a... 44 year old watching this movie for the first time. I, I, I think this is a beautiful movie. I will admit, I think it gets, it does start to get a bit silly. Yeah. I, as it moves on, it starts to get a bit more kitty. And, but that being said, I, I think what you're saying is absolutely right. I was startled by how quickly little mother little foot's mother dies uh spoiler alert but i mean <laughs> i've seen the i've seen the gif throughout twitter yeah. for yeah. a while so yeah. um and it's very moving it's this movie it's funny because of the fact that you were we we've talked about blue sort of pointing the way to what disney would become and what animation would become this has there are times where this has a lot of vibes akin to what we would see in the Lion King from Disney. A hundred percent. Yep. 
end from the first T-Rex attack to Littlefoot's mother's death, it really does carry that same emotional pull. Yep. And you've got the ideas of the circle of life. You've got the ideas of returning, becoming reacquainted with family and all that and finding a family of your own to help you through grief. That is all here. Yep. And, you know, it's, it's moving. It, it, it works so well. The set pieces in this movie are beautiful. I'm not surprised at all that the Rave Spring was such an inspirational part of this and was a huge reason why they wanted to do it because you feel the animation style is very akin to that sequence. It is, yeah. And Fantasia is my favorite Disney. And part of it is the music in me and the composer in me who just loves the marriage of music and animation. But it's also because of the fact that that was that was a time where Disney just didn't give up. Yep. Like they were not afraid to go for broke in a lot of ways. And that Rave Spring sequence is a big part of that. Um I I I like that this movie starts at a time when the earth is starting to change on dinosaurs. I, I made a joke on Twitter where it's like, does the last movie in this franchise end with the asteroid hitting <laughs> hitting Earth and the extinction level event? No, but uh, um, I can say that <laughs> Land Before Time 8 is called The Big Freeze, and all the characters are happily playing in snow, which I think misses the point. <laughs> Very much so. Oh, my God. Yeah. I yeah. Also, I, I was... You know, it's funny because this this whole this whole story in this movie uh, is about the uh, herbivore dinosaurs looking for forest far away, and all I could think of is that did Universal pocket this idea for Waterworld? <laughs> I don't. I honestly, I think there are so many different ideas that have been pocketed from this movie. I, I, I think this is the source code for Pixar. I think this is the source code for, like you said, so much of the Disney Renaissance. I think so. I, I, mm-hmm. I other than Little Mermaid, which was in production at the same time, I, I sincerely believe people looked at this movie and were like, "Okay, how do we, how do we do our version of that? How do we take that? How do yeah. we?" And so I wouldn't be surprised if they were like, hmm, that's a great idea. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and, and the thing is, it, it's, it's a shame that Bluth, as, as influential as Bluth is, he couldn't really savor that. No. It's a shame that he couldn't really savor that as, you know, once we get past these first three films, Oh. and get into what's coming up next and essentially what happens throughout the rest of what his career has been and it, it's it's really it's really unfortunate because of the fact that it's like the influence of Bluth on animation we, we've talked about with pretty much every one of these films yeah. and to see him feel like he's going to have to compete with that as opposed to continuing to move forward. Yeah. Yep. And there are some ideas that I'm going to talk about with those last two films, uh, with regard to Bluth. 
um, and animation in general that we'll get to. But I mean, to continue on land before this is another really lovely James Horn score. Oh, the um, score in this is just otherworldly. Yeah. Sweet, but not saccharine, and sentimental, but not in a cheesy mm-hmm. way. I mean, the, the whole thing just feels like, again, it feels like a warm, grandfatherly hug that has like the bitter sweetness of life in it, right? Of birth and death and renewal and and struggle and just everything you said. But it's, it's like the so much of the success of this movie is because of the score. I feel. But the narration achieves in this movie is ostensibly he's this is Pat Hingle, whoever he, the narrator, who is reading the story, almost reading the story, or recounting the story to us and and to yeah. children. But he, as the narrator, he never talks down to a child. He speaks mm-hmm. simply, but there's depth and warmth to his voice, and there's explanation given to things, and there's poignancy. And the in the the script and there's poignancy in the way he delivers it, and but again, this is not a movie. Even though it does, this is maybe the most kiddy, kid friendly in a in a weird way, kid like of all the ones that we've talked about so far. But it still isn't pandering. It's not talking down to its audience. Uh, and I think the other Correct. the other strength of this movie is the young cast that they got are actually very good. Gabriel Damon is Littlefoot. Littlefoot is not an annoying child like Feifel, who's just just hopelessly naive. He seems like a real kid, especially a kid who's sad and angry and scared, and he has emotions, and there's an emotional complexity to that character. Um, The only character you could say is like remotely kind of one note would be Sarah, um, but that's kind of her character. She's that stubborn, yeah. you know, uh, 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 prejudiced, been taught. Pre- and, 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 and what's so great about it is it's, it's, ex- it's a kid who's rehearsing talking points that she's been told, but she doesn't even really get what she's saying. Yeah. And somehow they, yeah. they capture that in a, in a dinosaur, <laughs> you know, and it's just, it's so great. And I, I would be remiss and I, I hate to be a downer, but I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mentioned the breakout star of this movie at the time was young Judith Barcy, who played Ducky, who is adorable as all get out. Um, mm-hmm. She, at the time she made this, she appeared in more than 70 commercials and many TV guest spots. Uh, but it was a situation where she was essentially the breadwinner of the family. And she actually began to exhibit signs of like trauma. She was like ripping out her own eyelashes and like hurting herself. Mm-hmm. And her child psychologist had ended up reporting the family to CPS. And it turned out that her and her mother were under extreme abuse from her father. Uh, they, were, they were an immigrant family. And uh, both police and CPS ended up dropping the investigation. And she and her mother were killed by their father uh, shortly after this movie came out. So she never even really got to see the success of, by the time, she was a, a, a massive breakout character in this movie. I mean, she died July 28th, 1988, and I think the movie came out after that. So uh, the movie was released in, I want to say November. Yeah, November of that year. So she never even got to see the movie. And I, one of the more depressing facts of your life is 
in the early days of the internet, when you were like, I could look up things from the past and it'll tell me who was in it, you know, and where they are today was finding yeah. that story. I found it on, uh, I think IMDB originally back in the day when the message boards exist, I was like, holy crap. And then like, you could find news articles and whatnot. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a horrible tragedy. And it ends up adding another layer of sort of poignancy because she's the most innocent. She's the most naive, yeah. the most innocent, the sweetest. She's such a welcoming, loving, sweet voice in this film. You know, Littlefoot's got his anger and different stuff because he's processing grief. He's going through the stages of grief in the movie. Sarah is the bigot and the kind of the bully a little bit, but there's more going on with her too. Because she's really, underneath all that, she's really just scared. Uh, and obviously, Petrie's sort of our comic relief, right? Uh, but here we here are sort of binding the whole thing together. We have Ducky, who could be a very annoying character in another animated film, but she's just such a sweetheart. And I think it all comes down to her performance. And Bluth and the people who worked on this movie just said that she was like getting, she was nailing this role in like one take. It'd give her a little bit of direction, and she was just such a intuitive, intuitively sharp performer at being a tiny child. They didn't really have to didn't have to coach her. They just let her be her with a little bit of like little bit of of nudging, and she was just nailing it and was a was a pro's pro. And it's just the whole thing is a shame. I, the whole thing is like, yeah, just it's an awful tragedy. So. God bless her and her family, and, you know, may she rest in peace. These are all fully realized characters. Yep. They're not just there for jokes. They're not just there for quips. They're not just there to, you know, hit one beat over and over and over. I mean, like you said with Sarah, that's essentially what she does, but that's also... That's also a, an important part of the character. Yep. And, um, you know, once again, we have, like, like Five Holes Hat, uh, Littlefoot's Leaf is yes. always seems to be lost and yet always ends up right where it be- needs, where it belongs for the uh, story's purpose. Um, but really, at a certain point, the Leaf becomes his mother. That's the yeah. spirit of his yeah. mother that's following yeah. him along so yeah it, yeah it it it's played with way more poignancy than Feifel's hat I get the idea that his dad gave him the hat at the end he grows another yeah. hat and he's matured and he's grown up and because whatever but it's not such well and the leaf also represents life yes and it also yes. it it represents their ability to continue to live yeah. and that's where this works much better than what we got out of an American tale. And um, you know, I I've mentioned music in this in in all of these movies. I the I will say the end credit song in is in this movie is my least favorite thing about oh, it. Oh yeah, yeah. It's so like whereas Corner's score is not saccharine, that song is completely saccharine. 100%. In the, I think it's Diana it, Ross, it, right? I think so. Yeah. But uh yeah. Um, that that is my least favorite thing about this movie. I'm so glad that I've seen it now, and it's it's really a lovely, 
Well, I think, you know, you're, you're talking about the primordial ooze that from which my love of movies was derived. So, I mean, I'd be an asshole if this wasn't my number one. And I, <laughs> I may be an asshole, but this is my number one. I give an 8.25 out of 10. Uh, it is my number one. I'm adding it to the short list. I think this movie is uh, just phenomenal. It just, it is... It could 100% just be my nostalgia, but I feel like if you set a modern child down in front of this movie, especially because it's so short, mm-hmm. and it's almost like a grandfather reading you a story, I think it could, again, it may not be a, the kid's favorite. They might, I think you could show this movie to a kid. I think it would keep their attention. I will, I will give this movie an 8.2 okay. as well. Yeah. This is my number two for the week. Now, this is, this is a wonderful film, and... uh I I understand the I understand the nostalgia behind this, and it's it also happens to be a uh, a a very good film. All right, <laughs> let's move on to some movies that are horseshit. Let's start with 1989's All Dogs Go to Heaven. We're coming for your childhood internet with a 44 percent Rotten Tomatoes. You are so consumed, no talent, mediocre piece of shit. Yo, Pierre. All Dogs Go to Heaven is out on video. Really? Yeah, you know that great Don Bluth movie about the cool dogs who helped this orphan? Mm-hmm. My family's in there buying it. Look, it's only $19.98 with the $5 rebate from Downey. Downey? What's Downey? But stuff that makes your clothes soft and this sweater smell great. Hey, showtime. I'm out of here. Lucky dog. Come on in. It's fluffy soft. Come on in, sit down in. Life's pretty soft. But where's the popcorn? This had a screenplay. I, this has to be part of the problem here, Brian. Let's let's listen to the, the other movies here had similar writers and had maybe one or two writers on it. This is a screen, screenplay by David Weiss, who's a name we haven't heard before, with a story by get your get your list out. Are you ready? Don Bluth. Ken Cromer, Gary Goldman, Larry Leaker, Linda Miller, Monica Parker, John Pomeroy, Guy Shulman, David Steinberg, David Weiss. That's like almost a dozen people to make a movie about a shit, just a shitty fucking dog. This movie was released November 17th, 1989 in a budget of $13.8 million. It made $27.1 million. Dirtbag Mutt exploits an orphan girl, defies God, and comes back for more shitbag behavior. This is a movie I saw like one time as a kid and as other people were more obsessed with it and they eventually they've made 50 million sequels of this one too and they've made a TV series out of this and this was a big deal. A lot of kids really loved this and I hated it. I, I, I did not like it as a kid. I like it less as an adult. This is the final film role of Judith Barcy. Uh, in fact, there was a song in this movie called Love Survives It All that is dedicated to her that was written kind of about her. Um, this film opened the same day as Little Mermaid. And you compare the violence, murder, smoking, drunken dogs, absolute low-life dogs, hell sequences, and let's just be clear, terrible songs. This has some of the worst songs I have ever heard in singing numbers. The songs are poorly written. It's poorly scored. This movie is disjointed. It feels like 10 different people wrote it. I don't know what the fuck the point of this movie is. The fact that Don Bluth and his friends really thought kids want to see dogs smoke, steal, murder, and go to hell is bizarre. And for the record, (laughs) let me say, and it's about all I have to say about this movie, Charlie 100% deserves to burn in hell forever. 
Fuck him. He didn't deserve <laughs> to go to heaven at the end just because he died saving the girl. He's the one that put the girl in harm's way in the first place. Fuck him. He is still one sick, perverse son of a bitch. This movie sucks, Brian. Boy, if you feel that way about the musical numbers in this movie, oh. I can't imagine what you feel about the next movie. The next one is a nightmare. Um. The next one is a living nightmare. And we'll get to it very quickly because I, I got nothing to fuck to say about All Dogs Go to Heaven. Yeah, there's not much to say about this movie at all. Uh, I I think I like the music is better than you did, but they're certainly not as memorable as any of the other music that we've heard so far in these movies. I'm going to make a comparison here that is going to sound very weird, but I think when you consider when when you consider the elements that the story elements that work in this film, I think it's going to make a lot of sense. This this feels like Don Bluth doing a family-friendly version of Fritz the Cat. Holy shit, you're exactly right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh my god. And I mean, you know, oh we we God. talked you talked about the road and you talked about the rose scoping earlier when it came to Secret of Nim. And we've talked about the more mature story elements that has been at work in Don Bluth. And it's hard not to compare him to Ralph Back. And I think there is and this is where I the success of Little Mermaid over this movie, which was a fully deserved because Little Mermaid's a terrific film. This is not a terrific film. I think it broke Don Blue. I up until this point, he's been really great at blending family stories and darker stories and narratives with a family sensibility. Yeah, some of it doesn't age well in american tale but the emotions are still there it feels like he's really trying to point the way to a more adult animation type of storytelling that Bakshi had already been working in he had done fritz the cat obviously he had done the lord of the ring he'd done wizard fire and ice american pop he was working he's one of the few examples of really strong animated film for adults. I feel like that's where Bluth was headed. Now, I mean, his collaboration with Spielberg obviously puts him into more of a family-friendly one, and that's fine, but the sensibility is still there. And I think the sensibility is here as well. The problem is, and it goes to the writing, which is just all over the place, prostitution and stuff like that yeah. kidnapping even though you're not saying it oh yeah you're still dealing with those ideas and it's like here it just i mean there are few filmmakers that have fallen off a cliff quite as hard as blue stuff well I, okay so i think the problem here like is not the themes that you just addressed right now, obviously, yeah. I don't think we need a movie with dog whores in it, but I, 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 the idea of, okay, this scumbag, this mutt who's kind of a scumbag, who's a streetwise dog, who meets an orphan girl and whatever, has a character arc and a come-to-Jesus moment, come-to-dog Jesus at the very least, and whatever, and has to earn his way into heaven, and da-da-da. Okay, fine, 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 fine. 
There's an okay way or even a good way to tell that story. This movie and its final product is so disjointed. <laughs> At times, yeah. it's, it's nearly incoherent. It's just a series of random, gruesome, terrible, dark, unfunny things that happen. And I'm going to be honest with you. I think, I, think, um, I think Burt Reynolds is the shits in this movie. I think he sucks. I think his performance is terrible. I think he has yeah, he's zero fucking charisma as this dog. No, he doesn't. And that's part of the problem. Dom DeLuise is doing like, doing Dom DeLuise actually with a little bit more of an edge because he usually plays like a lovable character, but uh, yeah. here he's a little bit of an asshole. Yeah, and and he's got a scene as itchy where he's basically telling, giving Charlie the business that's really good. Yeah, and it's probably the best moment in the entire. Movie. It is the best moment in the entire movie, a hundred percent. But yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, I mean, I. This is another one where it's like it it's very laid back. Yes. And for a movie with a ticking clock. Because he's got that clock he's got that watch and you feel like, well, that watch is counting down to something. It's basically like I guess counting down to his time back on Earth. Even though he's been old, he can't get back into heaven if he goes back. And I will say the the development of Earth, the con the development of heaven, the concept of heaven in this movie is really interesting. It just is, and I, I kind of wish we spent more time there, but we don't, and I I think that it's, there are so many things wrong with this movie. It it does come back to Charlie just not being a, a strong character, and it comes back to Burt Reynolds just not being able to imbue this film this character with any charisma whatsoever you and i both know movies you can get a lot across the table that's bullshit if there's charisma in it good characters or characters with charisma can make you forget can help you suspend disbelief and can help you buy into even problematic or shoddy storytelling where the script fails a good performance from reynolds could have gotten it a, a, across the bow or whatever whatever we want to put it uh, across the line he is not. He 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 is so lackadaisical. I, I've never heard somebody more kind of like high on their own bullshit, high on their own supply, than Burt Reynolds playing yeah. Charlie. Like you can just tell that he thinks he's the most charismatic man who's ever lived, and he's going to put that in his dog performance. And he mumbles through half of his fucking lines. And, and let's say nothing else of the fact that this is an ugly looking movie, animation wise. This is. It, it is the world that this is set in. It is it is like Fritz the Cat. It's ugly. It looks dirty. Yeah. The the cells look dirty. It just it just it. Even if you didn't compare it to Little Mermaid, which is an excellent film, you just, just compare it to the other stuff that he that Don Bluth has done in this decade. This movie sucks. <laughs> yeah. No, and I mean this is this is a moment where you know we've seen in you know. One of the things that's always interesting in animated films, especially when it comes to like living creatures that you know we know and we're pretty used to seeing the natural versions of, is how do they deal with the anthropomorphization yes. of those animals yeah. in their animation? I mean, we've seen little bits of you know him sort of evolving that between American Tale, him trying to personalize it a little bit with 
dinosaurs. Now the dinosaurs actually, you know, they 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 fit in with the perception of like what Gertie the dinosaur was like in the the silent film The Lost World, what they were the dinosaurs were like in King Kong and all that stuff. Here he's doing an anthropomorphization of these animals as extremely different. Yes. That they are almost hybrid characters and I think that's part of the problem in this case. It's like unsettling. It's very odd. Yeah. yeah. They're too human. They're too human and they're like all scumbag humans. So who do I give a shit about? Yeah. The only person I have empathy for is this little girl. And I don't want her anywhere near this world or these dogs or any of this. I just want, I want that character written out of the movie because you have this little child who's being played fairly well again by Judith Barcy. And it's like, it's the only character that even fucking matters. Just get her, mm-hmm. get her away from Tom DeLuise, from Scratchy or Itchy or whatever his name is, and and from Charlie. Get him the fuck away. Get that little girl out of there. <laughs> this little girl almost gets adopted <sighs> by a loving family of millionaires, and fucking Charlie wrecks it. Yeah, and it's like I don't give a yeah. shit whether he goes to heaven. <laughs> I don't give a shit. The, the little girl wouldn't have drowned. By this other evil fucking animal who's a, who's a, oh God. I mean, I, it feels ridiculous to be as a grown man screaming about a 40 year old cartoon about a whoremongering dog. But here we are. This is my life now. So I, I'm going to end my review. If you've got more to say, feel free, but I'm going to end my review. This is a four out of 10. And it's, it's, uh, 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 uh number four because this, that, the next movie we're going to talk about is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Oh, God. I mean, I I like it more than you do, but I'm I'm never gonna watch this film again. <laughs> I would give it like a five. I would give it a five and a half out of ten. It's 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 just and yeah, it's my number four as well because, like you said, we've got work. <laughs> well, let's move on to one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Certainly, one of the worst animated features I've ever seen. This is only the, the second time I've ever seen it. The first time I saw it in theaters. I'm talking about 1991's Rock-A-Doodle, which currently has a 20% on Rotten Tomatoes. Edmund always enjoyed reading his favorite book, but tonight he's really getting into it. From Don Bluth, director of An American Tale and The Land Before Time... Jesus! I'm a cat! ...comes the magical animation sensation... Rock-a-doodle. Rated G. Starts April 3rd at theaters everywhere. Again, a screenplay by David Weiss. Maybe David Weiss is just the shits. I don't know. Story by Don Bluth, John Pomeroy, David Steinberg, David Weiss. You know, same, basically the same people who made All Dogs Go to Heaven. I think part of the problem is, and he got shitty writers. Is it, is it really, Don, is it really based on Chanticleer? I don't really know. Uh, they say that it is, this is, I was going to say the triumphant return of Eddie Deason, but it turns out he's an awful pervert. So fuck him. It's the triumphant yeah. return of D Wallace lasting in the frighteners. That movie still stinks. Sorry, Brian. It was released August 2nd, 1991 in the United Kingdom. Folks at any point when an American studio releases their movie in the UK and Ireland, several months up to a year before it shows up in the U.S., they know it's a turkey. 
Yeah. This was released August 2nd, 1991 in the UK, August 23rd or 23 August, 1991 in Ireland, and April 3rd, 1992 in the United States. August to April. On a bus. <laughs> and now that we've seen it, we know why, don't we, Brian? Yeah. On a budget of $18 million, this thing made $11.6 million. My synopsis is, what the fuck happened to Don Bluth? You don't have enough respect for yourself or other people or what it is to express yourself. And I'm an NYU film school graduate, sucker. A, a rooster has an existential crisis and becomes Elvis. Here's an existential crisis and becomes Elvis and then disappears into the last five minutes of the movie. Chanticleer, here's, a, here's, here's the point. Rock-a-doodle, Chanticleer, is not the main character of this film. Nope. He's, not, he's nope. not even in the goddamn movie. <laughs> what they marketed this movie as and what it is, it's a bait and switch. This, this, yeah. is, this is an <laughs> ill-conceived piece of shit. And I got to start by saying that this movie is, I put this in quotation marks, folks, celebrating its 30th anniversary in 2022. <laughs> I did not remember that there was any live action in this movie at all. And when I say live action, they integrate live action in the movie, and they don't do it like they did in Roger Rabbit. They do it like they do it in Song of the South. Song of the South mm -hmm. is better integrated <laughs> live action animation than a movie made in 1990. This is insane how bad this movie is. It's wild that you said that this movie has a budget of $18 million <laughs> because it clearly had budgetary issues yes. because it is, it's a disaster <laughs> from a, from a, from a production standpoint. Yeah. It's an absolute disaster. <laughs> I, I want to thank the good people with Tubi for making this available. So I didn't have to fucking rent this movie for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tubi. Um, <laughs> this movie is that's it's it is irredeemable. It is a despicable film. It, oh, I mean, oh my good lord! I, I, it, I shit you not. This I've done. I've done a <laughs> lot of fucking movies on this show. This is one of the worst fucking movies that's ever been made. Oh, it's it's. So awful. I mean, it's and the thing is, it's like this one really, this one really does kind of spend like a feel like Bakshi do. Bakshi a couple of years after this would have Cool World, yes, yeah. which was a live action animation hybrid, yeah, that would fall flat on its face. <laughs> and it's like, but I don't even understand. <laughs> The only reason I can think of the live action existing at all in this movie is because they ran out of money to do it in anime. Because otherwise, you could so... It would be so much easier to just have this all in live action or in animation so that, and have the kid animated to where he basically just to where when he transforms into an animal, it works a little bit better. Here, it just, and the fact, and it sounds, it's so weird that, you know, this is D. Wallace, who was in E.T. earlier, and I, I 
like I said, I and like I said on Twitter, I respect your feelings on frighteners. It makes a lot of when when I heard it, it makes a lot of sense how you why you feel the way you feel about the frighteners. So no no harm, no foul. Yeah. Um but it's like it's so weird that this sounds like D Wallace, but it doesn't look like doesn't it. look like her at all. <laughs> no. I was I, I was like, wait, D Wallace? That's not D Wallace. Yeah. This this the live action in this movie looks like a home movie. A hundred percent. It is so strange. It's clearly like the world's tiniest set. It, it, you know, it's like it's it's Pete's Dragon did it better. And I don't mean the new one. I mean the old one. Oh, yeah. What's No, absolutely. This is the sort of movie that Disney was putting out that Bluth was like, you're killing, you're killing animation. He, and within a decade, yeah. he's making the exact thing that he hated. And uh, let's start with the, very, the conceit of this thing. Why would any child in 1991 give a shit about an Elvis-style, Vegas, loose interpretation of a French play from 1910? It has to be pub. It had to be public domain, right? That's the only reason. That's the only. Yeah, I mean, it had to be because otherwise, like, I, I have no. I mean, the Elvis thing. It's like Elvis was still kind of, in, you know, we we talk about things that are sort of in and out, yeah. not really in pop culture anymore. Elvis really isn't in pop culture anymore. No, <laughs> you know, no. I mean, and even the even you know people would think he's still alive and. Stuff like that. I feel like Bubba Hotep kind of took the winds out of those things right. as far as the idea of Elvis still being alive and all that stuff. But I mean, it it just doesn't really there's nothing that makes me feel like I I have no idea what it cause and I text and messaged you like, I don't know, an hour into this movie. And it's like, what are the stakes in this movie again? I I lost the plot. Yeah, who gives like, a, a shit? What, what is this? this <laughs> what is the plot? And yeah. what does the kid have anything to do with it? And it's like, okay, but, oh, God. A, lo a live action is... child who is a horrible <laughs> actor. One of the all-time yeah. bad kid actors. Not, he's kind of annoying, but he's just more bad than annoying. Yeah. He's in a live action world and his mom is reading him Chanticleer. And it's about a rooster who, when he crows, the sun comes up. And she's reading him this story, and there's an evil owl that his breath is magic, but there's like weird triangles and stars. None of that makes any sense. And when he breathes his breath on something, bad magic happens, and he attacks Chanticleer. And the sun rises anyways, as all the animals of the farm say that he's a fraud and that the sun doesn't rise with his voice and they ship him off. And so he ends up getting a contract deal with the devil or something in Las Vegas. And then he's out of the movie. He's gone. Yeah. He, he's. Then the real life farm is hit by a flood and the little yeah. boy is somehow confronted by this cartoon owl. And the cartoon owl breathes on him and he becomes a cartoon kitten. And then the cartoon kitten boy is in now the fully cartoon world. 
And there's it's a, the whole movie is in utter darkness because the sun will not rise. And, and so it's just the blackest, darkest. And here's the thing. Animation-wise, it's not good animation. But if no. you take the live-action portions of it out, it's a an isolation, a mediocre, below-average kids movie. Yeah. When you try to have the ambition this movie does and try to do whatever the fuck they were trying to do with this, and then you compare it to Beauty and the Beast or Aladdin, are you out of your fucking yep. mind? Like, this movie mm -hmm. never stood a chance. Ever, ever, ever. This movie, I, I shit you not, when the little boy is dancing around with the farm animals, it looks like zippity-doo-dah. It looks like it's straight out of fucking Song of the South. It's, it's, yeah, it is the cheapest green screen effect. It is, it's so bad. It's so, I just have to imagine it. You're right. At some point, something went way wrong with this. They tried to dump a bunch of money into it to fix it. It didn't, it never came together. And they just fucking dumped it into theaters overseas before Disney could get their shit over there to make whatever money they could to try to recoup. And they still failed. By you know ten million dollars, so this this movie is a disaster. Like you said, this is this is not that long of a movie either. <laughs> this this no. this fucking thing was a slog to get through. And Sean Claire, yeah. ostensibly our hero of the movie, you would think, does not make another appearance in this film until this ridiculous, bizarre Las Vegas chase sequence, or maybe it's Reno. I don't even remember chase sequence and then he's not even really in that part it's not until the very end of the movie that he comes back and learns to yeah. crow again and then the sun rises and then that gets rid of the flood and then the little boy is returned to not being a kitten anymore becomes a cartoon little boy who looks like shit and then he becomes a real little boy and what is real what isn't real why are the animals cartoons in the farm there are no, by the way, there's like very few live action equivalents to these animals. So is yeah. this a family that only raises animated livestock? What is this? Well, like all dogs go to heaven, the anthropomorphic aspects of this, these animals, it, it, it's getting absurd. It's becoming caricature at this point and not in a good way. Um, it's, this is, this is just, oh, good. Uh, <laughs> it's bad. Like I checked out when you were talking. I would I checked out again while you were trying to describe the plot of this movie. Um, it's just I just oh my good god! I mean, how we went in the span of a decade from something as dark, unsettling, but still warm and emotional as the secret of Nip yeah. to something as incomprehensibly fail that fails on every level is rockadoodle just blows my mind. Yep. This isn't just a reaction to Roger Rat. This is a reaction to the fact that Disney is big hit. Yes. After the Little Mermaid. And they've got Beauty and the Beast in the wing. Yeah, Aladdin the wing. They figured out what they need to be made. Yep. And I think it ruined Blue. And 
because the next few movies he would come out with were I mean, I haven't seen them, and it's like, I'm not interested in seeing them if they're on the same level with something like Rockadoodle. I can't tell you, I, 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 I can't tell you any more of his movies beyond this point. I don't know, I couldn't tell you. I've seen, I've seen Anastasia. Oh, yeah, okay. It's, it's good, yeah. but it's so obvious he's competing with Disney. Yeah, yeah. And then he did Titan AE, which was his last major feature, and like, it's okay, but it's, it's lifeless. Mm, I've never seen that one. And yeah, it's 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 okay. I mean, it's it's interesting. You know, it's interesting because of the fact that again with Disney, they would have like Treasure Planet. They had Atlantis coming, so it's like you know, again, he's competing with Disney, and like, but in from the time of like, even and I'm I'm gonna from the time of between All Dogs Go to Heaven and Anastasia. I mean, you feel like he's just based on Rockadoo, you feel like he's lost. Yes. And you feel like he just doesn't know what type of movie he should be making a And it's like, it's, and one of the things I wanted to talk about is, you know, I brought back, and Bakshi has always had an issue finding budgets. He's also had an issue finding box office success. Yeah. One of the great tragedies we have when it comes to American, American animation is this perception that all animation is for kids. It's for family. And Disney has basically rammed that down our throat. Yeah. For yeah. 80 years, 80 plus years. Yep. And it's like, that's fine. I mean, that type of animation works for them. But you look at Japan, you look around the world, there are tremendous amount of great animated films that are not Maybe Don Bluth could have thrived. But because of the fact, and it's probably because of the way he left this that made him feel like he needed to compete with them when they got back into the game. And I think it's the worst thing that happened to him from a creative standpoint. Well, he goes from being somebody who's trying to mix old and new and go back to basically how do we, in a, how do we take old, old animation style quality, but mix it in with that, you know, the, the leading technology of our day kind of a thing. And yeah. how do we do all of that and push forward? And, he, you know, he goes from essentially being focused on his own work to being overly focused on competing directly with Disney. Yeah. And uh, it's really sad. It's a very, mm -hmm. it's like one of the, it's like one of the great downfalls <laughs> of a creator. Yeah. Because I think if anybody maybe could have helped bridge the gap between, Hey, animation is not just for kids. I think it was it would have probably have been somebody like a Bluth who maybe could have yeah. transitioned uh, to a more more mature animation style for for broader audiences. And instead, yeah, he just goes off the reservation. Uh, and obviously, like Anastasia is a better animated film than this. Titan E is a way better looking movie than this. But 
yeah, he he just never he never gets a success. You know, All Dogs Go to Heaven was a success, but that's it. That's it for him as far as movies that were really kind of culturally relevant. And th- this yeah. is I, I didn't like All Dogs Go to Heaven. I don't think it's a, a well made movie or a good looking movie in comparison to his other work. But it's light years ahead of this thing. It, it's it, this this is yeah. amateurish. Uh, it is like I like I said, it is the worst of the week for me, obviously. And I'm gonna give it a one out of ten. I think it sucks. I'm gonna go with a uh, three and a half out of ten. I I mean I I don't even know why I'm rating it that high, <laughs> but it's 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 you know. Well, it, I won't it lie to you. I had it, I had it a little bit higher, but as you were talking, <laughs> as you continue to talk, my I just kept adjusting the points downward. Yeah, it's it's it's. Oh, I I did the same with my own. Or like what, listening to you and um. No, it's God. This is so baffling. Yeah, this is my obviously this is my worst of the week too. And uh, it's it's just I I'm. We're grown men saying the word rockadoodle one too many times. Yeah, indeed. All right, let's give our recap. Well, I'll say it one more time. Rockadoodle, one out of ten. All dogs go to heaven, four out of ten. American Tail, six point five out of ten. Coming in number two, The Secret of Nim, seven point five out of ten. And my number one, with a bullet, The Land Before Time, six or actually eight point two five out of ten. What is your recap? My recap is number five is Rockadoodle with a three point six. Number four. Four is All Dogs Go to Heaven with a 5.5. Number three is An American Tale with a 7.8. Number two is The Land Before Time with an 8.2. Number one is The Secret of Him with an 8.7. What is your recommendation of the week? It's got to be The Secret of Nim. I I I think it is. It's still one of the most startlingly startlingly dark and beautiful fairy tales i think we've ever gotten out of animation in america i think it signified that don bluth was a filmmaker to be reckoned with it signified that he was a filmmaker with a real voice to be paid attention to and i you know it's like in two in 2022 is the 40th anniversary of this coming out and like like you were you know, and you mentioned that, you know, it would be great to see this on big screen. I certainly hope that Fathom Events makes that possible this year uh, or in 2022, because I would definitely go to see this on the big screen. Yeah, my recommendation is therapy. Therapy for Don Bluth with his issues for Disney and therapy for every child traumatized by Don Bluth in the 80s. On our very next episode, we'll be ranking video game movies of the 1990s, which includes (laughs) 1993's Super Mario Brothers, 1994's Double Dragon, 1994's Street Fighter, 1995's Mortal Kombat, and 1999's Wing Commander. Brian, in our very next episode, the highest reviewed, like the, the most favorably reviewed movie on the tomato meters at 38%. So I'm not, I, I'm not ending. <laughs> I, 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 we ended here with Rockadoodle and we're going back in the shit one more time. 
as we head towards the end of this season, uh, where can the fine folks find you on the interwebs? My written work is at www.sonicdestema.com as well as patreon.com backslash sonicdestema. Uh, you can check out the Sonic Cinema podcast on YouTube, Apple, Google, and Spotify. Um, Jason was on the podcast in 2021. We discussed three interesting little uh, sci-fi horror movies um, of Jason's choosing. Check that out. It was a really fun discussion. Uh, so, all of those movies so you, are better than Rockadoodle. So you, you uh, know that they're weird ass movies, is what we're saying. They're weird ass movies. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, I've been uh, doing some guest spots in addition to binge movies. Um, we we I've had some really great discussions. Uh, but SonicDashCinema.com is my main hub, and uh, you can check me out there. And uh, I I want to thank Jason for having me back on. Oh well, you're more than welcome. It's always fun talking to you about movies, and I appreciate you doing this. And would you ever consider doing a live Twitch Rockadoodle marathon where you had to watch Rockadoodle for 24 hours to raise money for charity? Oh God! <laughs> I... For orphan children, for for the kids, I would probably say <laughs> what yes. About orphaned, what I, about orphaned? What about orphaned mice? Would you do it for orphaned mice? I mean, maybe. <laughs> what is Brian's? What is Brian Scuttle willing to do for his mental health for orphaned children and mice? We'll find out in 2022, 2023. At some point, we're going to see if we can get this guy to do a 24-hour Twitch stream of Rockadoodle. At what point does he just absolutely break? I'm going to guess it's um, oh, viewing 1.25. I think a quarter of the way through your second viewing, yeah. you'd have to stop. We have something here in Binge Movies. Obviously, we're trying to preserve movies for all time, even beyond the end times in our vault, to create the people's canon of film. We also have something called The Anti-Vault, which is a movie so bad it has to be quarantined from the rest of films lest it spread. I'm going to nominate this season Rockadoodle for The Anti-Vault. Uh, I'm going to put it up to our binge lords, but do you think it's a movie so bad it should just be quarantined and just erased and, and put away somewhere? Absolutely. I'm, <laughs> I'm ashamed that I was able to find this movie. <laughs> Well, what that that you know there there should be there should be pull quotes for binge movies, and one of them should be "I'm ashamed that I was able to find this movie." <laughs> Put that on Apple Podcast. Yeah, would let nobody ever tell you, binge lords, that we don't cover it all from top to bottom, side to side, because we do. Brian Skittles ashamed that he could even find the movie, let alone had to talk about it for forty five minutes. <laughs> So on that note, until next time, binge on. Binge on.